Hello and welcome back to podcast from the edge with me, Peter Bruce. Heaven's the life, but it's been cold, and I hope today's episode is as heartwarming for you to listen to as it was for me to discover. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was taken along with a few other journalists deep into Mdansane, the sprawling township between East London and King Williamstown. Some people argue Mdansane is the biggest township in the country, or at least a close second to Soweto. It goes on forever. After many twists and turns, we finally arrived at a frankly unprepossessing school, typical, I'm sure, of most township facilities in South Africa. Having said that, the place was spotless and the classroom we were taken into was ordinary in every respect except for what was happening inside. First, there was near total silence. Inside, all in their uniforms, were I reckon 30 or so tiny little heads bent over computers or rather tablets, and the kids were so small. They can't have been older than eight or nine, that's what it seemed to me. Wearing headphones, each of them had something different on their screen, and each of them was totally engrossed with what was in front of them. What I was watching was an interactive lesson in English. These tiny tots had arrived at that stage in their schooling when tuition is supposed to move from their home language, in their case, Isikosa, to English. The young boy I knelt down next to sort of acknowledged me the way my own kids used to when they were on their screens and I wanted to talk to them. At the bottom of his screen was a figure walking up and down a row of hills. In the middle was the graphic of a car. At the top were the words horse, bus, and car. As he casually tapped car, the figure at the bottom moved a little further on his journey and he heard the word car through his headphones. It seems obvious now, but I remember thinking that if an eight-year-old Gossa kid knows the English word for car, I should damn well know the Gossa word for one. Needless to say, I don't. Suffice to say, there are thousands of children in impoverished schools doing the same thing, thanks to a remarkable woman called Nicola Harris, who is joining me today. I wanted you to hear her story because it's an object lesson in how to get things done in our compl complicated country. She has more than 200,000 learners doing this at nearly 300,000 schools. Sorry, that's 300 schools. Uh, each child has their own password, can access their uh, 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 tablet at their own pace, learn at their own pace. And I tell you, I've never seen such concentration. Nicola, welcome. You've been running an NGO, a non-governmental organization called Click Learning, for nearly 10 years. You've got some 18,000 tablets in these schools. But before you tell us more about it, I read somewhere that before Click Learning, uh, you were a banker in Australia. I know you grew up in Johannesburg, but what brought you back? The education system in this country is daunting enough for the people employed it, employed in it. What did you think that you could do and what brought you back from Australia? Hi, Peter, and thanks very much for having me. Um, I never actually went to Australia on a permanent um, mission. It was always just exploring options when I um, left university. But um, what brought me back largely was the energy and spirit of South Africa. Um, they say home is where your heart is, and I grew up in South Africa, and certainly um, it always felt like my heart was back at home in South Africa. And despite all of our challenges and um you know, many challenges we do face as a nation. Um, there's an energy, there's a spirit, and there's a warmth in South Africa that is hard to replicate elsewhere. Um, 
I had a joke with my colleagues um, when I left Australia and they couldn't believe that I was moving back to Johannesburg because obviously it's all bad news they see see there and a very scary place for many Australians and um, they couldn't couldn't fathom why I was moving back. And I said to them, well, you know, at least every morning I'm going to wake up and be grateful that I'm alive. And that's what brought me back to South Africa. And did you know what you were going to do? How did click learning happen? Um, I came back into the investment banking field, um, doing mergers and acquisitions, which was what I'd been doing in Australia. Um, so the move into education happened after that and after a few more years in that space, realizing that I felt I wanted to do something that had more meaning and more impact on the broader population in South Africa and that secured our future. Um, it's a country I'm passionate about, I came back to, and I want to be a part of a brighter future. And so, and and the idea of, I mean, because you're you're in a particular you're in a particular niche, you're at that point, if I'm not mistaken, where um, you 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 find children who need to learn to speak English. Um, how did you know there was space there for you for a start? Because you've been doing this now for ten years. So when we started, a lot of the interest came more on the technology side and recognizing um, personal passion, family passion for innovation, technology, and the potential that it offered, um, and trying to figure out how we could unlock that potential in a South African context, and particularly in education. Um, when we then investigated it a little bit further, um, we realized that the power of was likely to sit in these personalized learning programs as opposed to hardware into schools, which was happening but not delivering massive results on its own. Um, and then in the education context, um, investigations show that we're stamping at the first building blocks, you know, where there's a lot of attention on matric results and what we're doing and trying to intervene late, later on in a, a um, school career. But realistically, Recent Pearls results show us that 81% of kids aren't learning to read for meaning in any language. Um, and if we're not getting that right, it becomes incredibly difficult to remediate later on in school and, quite frankly, later on in life um, generally. So we decided we want to focus um, at a primary school level. And as you mentioned, um, about 90% of our learners in this country switch to English as the language of learning and teaching in grade four. Um, but they're not getting a solid foundation in either their home language or in English. Um, so given the products that were available, the powerful personalized adaptive learning programs are generally in English. So we've chosen to focus at this stage on um, English language and English reading for meaning as a first additional language um, and trying to get that grade four switch over into the language um, and trying to equip learners with the skills that they need for that switch over. Um, we have also now introduced um, numeracy as a as an additional offering because again we're we're stumbling at those first building blocks of uh, basic literacy and numeracy um, in basic education. The relationship between the child and that and that uh, tablet that they were using was remarkable. I mean, they were completely engrossed in these things, and and I'm not sure what the other kids were doing because I was I stuck with the the boy that I was kneeling with, and I was really enjoying watching his progress, and I was enjoying watching his little figure at the bottom of the screen move along um, on on his journey. Um, 
But you have 18,000 of these in schools around the country in, you know, not the most secure environments uh, that you would want to put a piece of digital equipment. How do you, how do you, you know, a lot of people would go along and drop off a couple of computers at a school and, and leave, and that would be the end of it. They've done their duty. Thank you very much. Um, but you don't do that. You you stick with the lap, you stick with the tablet. You, It's your, um, it's the way you work. You don't go away. So I often say to people about click learning that we do the non-sexy part of technology. So we're not software developers. We license content um, that we believe has strong pedagogy and can deliver the outcomes that we're looking for. And a lot of the expertise that we've developed over the last 10 years is around the implementation and recognizing that technology requires a holistic approach. Um, and that means hardware change management with the people that are involved as well as the, the content and the software that the child actually uses at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, it's quite a complex operation that we run. Um, we have now centralized an infrastructure division that deals with both the distribution of the devices and the maintenance um, and ensuring that those devices are, are up and running as much as possible. Um, it includes everything from the hardware distribution, which is funded partially by our donors, sometimes by the schools, um, and we do try and use what resources are, are available already in the schools. Um, it includes peripherals like the headphones that they need so that they can each engage and, and be so engrossed um, in their journey. Um, we put safes into many of the schools. Um, there's cameras monitoring the safety and, and any movement in the labs out of ordinary time that we get an early alert to any potential threats um, in the schools. More recently, we've worked to understand which of the, um, so we put the connectivity into the schools. Um, more recently, we've worked to understand which of those towers have um, battery backup so that um, we could put UPS devices into the schools to keep our routers and then have our tablets running over load shedding. Um, and so I guess that's the actual infrastructure side, but over and above that is then the people side where um, we also hire unemployed youth from the surrounding communities to work as what we call facilitators in the labs. Um, and they help ensure that the learners come into the labs, that they log in and that everything's up and running. And should there be any issues with the hardware, um, they're able to report and liaise with, with my team to ensure that those are resolved as quickly as possible. Um, while leaving the teachers free to deal with the academic side of, of what the learners are experiencing in the classroom. It was interesting because what, what, what I saw was a sort of triumph of organization, really, because you had, and there were with us, some of your some of your partners and your funders. Um, you had a cell phone company. There was a, a company that, that erects cell phone masts. There was a, um, a, a big funder, a big American funder. Um, and you're welcome to mention the names of these uh, companies. I'm, um, um, I, I was I was so impressed at at understanding that the software is not the thing, in the sense because there are lots of these programs around where you can learn interactively um, to speak a language if you've got you know if you have the patience. Um, uh, but you somehow managed to put it all together. You've you've got the first of all on the people side, the facilitators. You employ almost eight hundred facilitators around the country, um, 
and you've managed to get them into schools despite them not being teachers. That's going to be no easy task. Um, I think the key thing um, in terms of that interaction is we recognize that our teachers are quite overwhelmed with what they're expected to do, both administratively and in the classroom, and um, in many areas with the significant large sizes of their classes. So we recognized that it was quite important that this didn't become an additional burden to the teachers. So they needed the support um, on the administrative side. Um, and also, you know, if you have a lab and multiple classes are coming through that lab, it needs one person to take responsibility for the state of that lab. Um, so it's really been a support to the teacher as opposed to someone coming in to teach in their yeah. place. Um, the software takes the learners on a journey and the facilitators are really there to help manage the tech to help the teacher ensure that the learners come when they need to um, and free them up. So um, it's been very well received by the schools to have the support to make it a success as opposed to just dumping it on them and adding another sort of duty to um, the teachers and the school to manage. Um, and obviously um, there's some quite interesting research coming out um, I think it's in Limpopo province and, and various other areas over the last few years in terms of what they're terming teacher's assistance and the positive impact that it's having on um, learning outcomes, um, having an extra human in these classrooms, particularly in these early grades, um, to help just support the teacher in the important roles that they're playing. Now that you mentioned the teaching assistance, this was, a, I think, a program um, President Sir Ramaphosa started during COVID where he looking for some way to involve unemployed uh, uh, perhaps even graduates in in something um, have you been able to to tap into that program and use um, some of those people as facilitators in your schools in your labs uh um, that, that was the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative, mm. um, which was targeted to, as you say, add these additional resources. And certainly um, in some areas, other organisations have, have been using them for that, that function. From our point of view, um, our core objective remains ensuring um, maximising learning outcomes for the learners. And to do that, we need a multi-year intervention with the learners and with the schools, and we need some level of stability within our, our classrooms. So yeah. our program is structured to have our facilitators working with us for um, two to three years, um, whereas the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative was a sort of six to nine month funding um, uh, support for, for these facilitators. So we didn't tap that per se, but... Um, we have been working very specifically with YES, where we um, work with corporates who are funding through the YES initiative for the first year. Um, it's basic work experience, um, obviously implementing our actual program and some uh, adult literacy skills and communication skills that we work with the facilitators on. Um, we've then been looking at moving them onto skills development courses through learnerships um, and particularly interesting given the infrastructure we have out there in putting those that are eligible through um, software development courses so that in two to three years they can too move on to better employment um, but it gives us sufficient stability within our structure to also deliver on our primary objective being the um, 
improve learning outcomes of learners. But it's a, it's a really exciting secondary sort of outcome of the work we've been doing has been this youth employment um, side of it, um, the positive impact that these youth are having um, on the basic education system. But also, um, I think you joined us at the dinner the night before um, the school yeah. visit where one of the facilitators stood up and spoke about her journey on um, the coding and software development course. So if we can see some of these facilitators moving up onto digital jobs where we know there's um, demand in the economy, it's a really exciting um, uh, journey for them too. Nicola, just remind me because I'm an idiot. Yes, is a is a private sector program, or is it a is it a is it how is that funded? It's um it's a it's a government led private sector collaboration. I would say. Forgive yeah. me if I don't quite have the right sure. term. Um, so it's funded by corporates um uh, that choose to um either fund internally, yes, candidates, unemployed youth, or um through people like us who host on their behalf. Um, but there are various um, BE benefits and um, incentives that the government has put in place to to enable it. So if you meet your minimum BE requirements, you can step up in your BE level and get certain incentives by supporting the, the initiative. Yeah. So I was making the point just now that, that unlike many of the NGOs that I um, and I so admire the work that anybody does in these areas, and, and I'm sure the people that it affects appreciate that but the fact that you don't leave is what sticks in my mind you know it's all very well to um to build new toilets let's say at at um, rural schools um but once you build the toilet you leave you stay there and it must cost an enormous amount of money um give us some idea if you can about how, well how much does it cost you to run you've been doing it now for 10 years you've got thousands of uh, children coming through your labs all the time. Um, how much are you spending? Mm. Um, so, Peter, we are spending about... Uh, Peter, we're spending 167 million rand this year to fund the programme, um, and that will take Good us brilliant. up to 250,000 learners on our programs and 22,000 devices in the field. Um, and by the end of August, approximately 900 facilitators that are employed. So it is a um, huge, huge budget to fund each year. Um, and it does uh, give me a few sleepless nights every now and then. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we have been fortunate to have some great supporters, as you previously mentioned, um, in the tech um, sector, and it's always um, sensitive to, to mention names because there are many, but some of our bigger funders include, um, uh, we have MSDF, who have invested huge amounts into, that's the Michael and that Susan Dell Foundation. That's right. That has invested huge amounts into the education system in general and have been um, a, a great backer of ours. Um, we have RAIN from the telco point of view. We have American Tower Corporation on the tower side. We have Huawei as a big funder. Um, Investec funds a significant number of our um, YES um, facilitators. Um, and then a number of um, other funders that have come to the party. I think it's also worth noting that we're receiving about 10 million rand from the Jobs Fund this year to help with the skills yeah. development of our facilitators. 
And we have managed to get about 6 million rand um, donated by schools themselves as buy-in, whether it's contribution to four or five of the devices that go into their schools or to um, the refurbishments of the labs and and parts like that, which we we are really encouraging of just to get basic buy-in. Um, but I think, you know, if we think about next steps of where we would like to see ourselves going on this is to say, you know, we've created a model, we're doing a lot of research on the impact and and um, outcomes of, of our intervention, which we can maybe talk about in a moment. But our next step would be to see where we can now work with government to take a model that we believe works, um, that is holistic and can make it work in our circumstance, the circumstances of the majority of our schools, um, and look at sort of getting sustainable budget allocation to that um, at a at a government level. Yeah, which is partly what the Eastern Cape Education Department was doing at that at that school that day uh, after the after the classroom visit. <clears throat> but are you saying that there's a there's a limit to how much the private sector can do, and that at some stage you do need public support or government support uh, to keep to sustain this, at, particularly at the level of, of growth that you're talking about. I mean, it's a wildly large number of students involved and, and an enormous amount of money. Uh, 100%. I think we've probably reached, to some degree, the limit of private sector um, funding on its own. Um, we've had great support from the provincial governments in terms of um, working with us to get this into the schools, to identify the schools. Um, as you commented, um, the MEC's um, event in the Eastern Cape, um, reiterating their support and um, uh, uh, backing of the program um, has really helped ensure that we get the buy-in and can do what we what we need to do. But um, I think beyond these sort of 360 schools that we'll have at the end of, of August and 250,000-odd learners, it would be now to look at, um, you know, next phase of growth would need collaboration between, between government funding and private sector funding. Um, how we are seeing the role of the private sector now is to really deepen the research in terms of the outcomes, to be able to inform government in terms of what decisions they should be making from a product point of view, um, and a time allocation point of view in terms of what these these programs could offer in the context of their um, curriculum and education policy. I was I was struck uh, at the event afterwards where the MEC spoke. I was struck by how well not how well spoken the kids were because that's that's a deeply almost insulting thing to say in South Africa because everyone then sounds like a Model C school. Um, uh, um, alumni but their their english accents were completely un-south african they were they were hearing on their, their headphones a completely different accent weren't they and, and and it was lovely in a way it was sort of neutral it wasn't identifiable as south african you know what i mean it was it was it was, it was lovely in a way it was like be, almost being in another country and they spoke so well and so confidently uh, yes, I don't know if you recall the story that one of the parents stood up and, and spoke about trying to understand what his son was saying in terms of the difference between the, a dog and a door um, and not really having realised where his son was even learning this English. Um, but, um, I mean, I sort of, you know, got quite emotional watching those young, young kids stand up 
and have the courage to stand up in front of a crowd of 250 people and speak in English so well. And as you say, in what I would term as a very, very neutral accent. So, you know, very transferable, I think, later on in life in terms of um, business mm. skills, employment skills and that. Um, but really trying to get a, a, a neutral sort of easy to understand version version yeah. of English has been a has been a bonus as well. How do you take it forward, though, Nicola? I mean, the, getting the government involved, uh, is it a provincial? Do you do it province by province? Is there a national buy-in required? Mm. What, I mean, what's your job now? Um, you know, we we are doing our best, but always open to um, guidance from government on this one as to, you know, where, where they um, – uh, where where we need to go and, and um, do the work. But at this stage, a lot of our work is done at a provincial level. Um, that is sort of where implementation happens and, and budget um, uh, is allocated. Um, but I think there's also a role um, and, and work to be done at a, at a treasury and a basic education, um, national basic education level. Um, our particular focus at a national level is to help inform the research side so we can have um, research-driven policy. So getting them involved in, in all the various questions we're asking through the research that we're doing. Um, uh, but also, you know, our passion is making a difference and we want to reach as many learners as possible. Um, our budget as a foundation, as the private sector, is significantly smaller than what um, the government's budget is. So, um, you know, where, wherever yeah. wherever there is appetite, I think we're, we're interested in working um, both at a provincial level and a national level um, to help, um, you know, to help support their yeah. policy of improving foundational sure. literacy and numeracy. And and as you as you talk to the government at, at at provincial or national level, what how do you um what are you, you were talking about outcomes. Let's talk about I mean what outcomes can you show them to 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 demonstrate, you know, the the, the, the value of what you're doing? So what we're seeing um so far in our research is that um learners who spend as little as 20 hours on our program um, over an average of sort of nine months of engagement um, have a 20% improvement in their foundational literacy skills. Um, so we've designed a test that um, because we're online and digital, we can actually get um, gather large amounts of data. Um, and we've invested in a system and a tool that allows us to go out and test these learners. Um, so we're seeing, seeing that sort of close to 20% improvement in the results with just a small dosage of 20 hours. Um, part of the launch in the Eastern Cape was for what we're calling our double click project, which is now increasing the dosage and testing a few other um, products in the schools. Um, and um, we're putting a lot more rigor behind that testing and including some control schools in that um, cohort to understand the relative impact of our interventions and no intervention and how to deliver the best outcomes for the learners. Um, so um, certainly seeing positive results and um, have a structure now to answer many more questions on um, learning outcomes at a foundational yeah. phase and, and 
you know, really our goal, goal with that is to, as I said earlier, is um, evidence-based decision-making in sure. terms of which interventions at what schools for how long um, within the context of, of our policy and curriculum documents. What, do you, what are you trying to do there? I mean, if, if I was, say, a 10-year-old, I'm not sure. I grew up in a different system. So grade four would be, how old are you in grade four? What, what are you, t- nine or 10? Or These were uh, tiny kids. Nine, I think. Nine. Grateful. Okay, nine. Yeah. I wasn't all that. I wasn't wildly out. Um, um, uh, how do, how how much time can they expect to spend on a laptop, on a on a tablet, um, in a year, mm-hmm. in a in a, in, a, in a school that's working properly, in a lab that's working full time? Because I presume that as one class leaves, another one moves in. There's these. You've got your own mm. log on, mm. so presumably you can you you can just you can run them almost nonstop. So this is the trade-off we're trying to understand a little bit better because it's it's a basic mathematical equation of you know how many devices do you have, how many hours do we have in the school day, and how many learners can we serve. So. You know, um, we would like to see a little bit more time on the devices, but that means we need we can only serve fewer learners or we need more devices in the school. Um, uh, We are comparing the results of learners who do two hours a week versus learners who do one hour a week. Um, And that is partly driven by the curriculum allocation, where English first additional language and foundation phase, so up until grade three, is only allocated a maximum of three hours of curriculum time. Um, So we're balancing many constraints and sort of um, factors to try and find what the optimum amount is. there's also a subject called life skills um, in primary school, which deals with things like computer skills, fine motor skills. So there's also capacity to, um, because we're developing those skills as part of the program, there's also capacity to eke out a bit of curriculum time um, from from that component. So um, the interesting thing, though, is if you do, again, the maths around it is um, if we allocate an hour a week, learners are only in school for 42 weeks a year. Um, generally the last four weeks of the school year, there's no one there um, once exams are finished. So that's 10% of your year taken out. Um, there's assessment during um, uh, each term where often we see a lull in attendance. And, um, you know, and then there's basic absenteeism, sickness, load shedding is now adding another complication to it that um, it's... Um, uh, it's difficult to eke out those hours. Yeah. It's a challenging yeah. environment. Yeah. So, um, but what's encouraging, as I said, you know, as little as 20 hours in a nine month period is showing very significant results. And, you know, we continue to look at innovations around after school programs, holiday programs, because the resources are all there. So the bulk of the investment has already been made in terms of the infrastructure, connectivity, um, and facilitators. So, if we could get more out of those assets that are already in the field, I think we'll see even bigger results. Yeah, one of the interesting things I learned, apropos really of nothing, was that that you've raised it was that um, the, the the sort of brothers and sisters of older children who may be in matric um, tend to stop coming to school once their elder sisters or brothers have written matric, which is often quite early in the year. Mm. Um, because they can't walk to school on their own, yeah. um, 
and it, it was just you know you, you what there's so much you don't know until you mm. until you live in those until you walk in those shoes i suppose mm. um yeah the the other thing nicola just to finish off one of the you, you mentioned the research showing that you know uh, our, our kids at grade four can't read for uh, comprehension but the same research also showed and we were scored much better in on in, in this particular metric was that we were really keen to learn how to read for learning um or comprehension and that obviously must be what keeps you going because there is a desire and that's been measured yeah peter i think you would have seen this when you walk into the classroom these young kids are sponges they are their brains are firing they're ready to learn they're capable of learning um and you know, for me, it's just giving them those opportunities to learn. So, you know, what ultimately drives us is actually it's not about the literacy or the numeracy or the digital skills that we're offering the kids, but it's it's about creating um, sustainable livelihoods. So creating independent learners, allowing these kids to go and pursue, um, you know, I guess to some degree engendering a curiosity and giving them the skills to then feed that curiosity um, and move on to to um, a, a sustainable livelihood where they're independent learners, where they can create a better future for themselves. Yeah. Nicola Harris, thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for what you're doing. It's no easy task, as I said earlier on, and I was completely blown away uh, by, what I, by what I saw. And thank you all for listening. These podcasts are available on the Financial Mail digital platform and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. So tell your friends about them, but mainly tell them about click learning. The more money Nicola can raise, the more children she can help. And from what I saw, not a cent goes to waste. Bye-bye for now. We'll meet again here next week. 